Good morning. My name is Kristen Paleo, and I'm going to be reading the scripture this morning. It's found in the book of John, chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. Uh, you will find it on page 833 of the Pew Bible or on the screen. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Tony. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Community. I've titled my sermon this morning, If You See Something, Say Something. Uh, following the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, and other attacks that followed shortly after, an attempt to prevent further loss of life uh, led an advertising executive in New York to come up with the phrase, if you see something, say something. The idea was to encourage people that if they saw something out of the ordinary, they should say something. Say something to the authorities that may be able to do something about it. Uh, and they could evaluate whether it was actually something dangerous or not. See something, say something. This isn't going to be a sermon about how to prevent terrorism, at least not directly. But it will be about seeing something out of the ordinary and saying something about it. This is how the good news of Jesus Christ has been spread since the beginning of Christianity. Someone seeing something, or rather someone, and then saying something to others about what they've seen. John writes about this in such a straightforward way that I think it could be possible to miss how truly amazing it is what he's describing. And so this morning, I hope to encourage us to slow down from our busy lives, listen to these words from God recorded in John's Gospel, and come away with a deeper appreciation for God's goodness to us. I hope that appreciating God's goodness more fully will be persuaded to love him more deeply and share that love with others. Will you pray with me? Father God, most of us lead such busy lives. Lord, uh, oftentimes we're, we're busy with things that distract us from you, that take us away from you. Take us away from, from how good you are, from how much you've done for us. And so I pray, Lord, in this time in your word, uh, that you would help us, help us all to uh, turn away from those things that, that we're thinking about in the upcoming week, Lord, maybe even later today. 
Help us to focus our attention on you and your goodness. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So one of the main ways that this account of Jesus calling his first disciples can become ordinary to us is that if we forget what John tells us in the beginning of his gospel, I'm going to read from the beginning of John's gospel again, and I'd recommend you read along with me because I'm going to read about 18 verses. Um, and so it's on page 83 in the Pew Bibles. This is, I'm starting at the beginning of John's gospel where John begins. In those first verses, he says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Let this next part sink in. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. I once heard a pastor ask the question, if you could ask God for anything, anything, what would you ask him for? Perfect health, mental, physical health, money, friends, a government with no corruption, perfectly behaved children. Would it ever occur to you to ask God to give you himself? Because this is what he's done in the person of Jesus Christ. God has given us himself. Look at me, look with me at chap chapter one of John's gospel. We're going to look at verses 35 through 37. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. 
And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So this is day three in John's Gospel account here. And John the Baptist says of Jesus walking by what he said of him on day two. Behold, the Lamb of God. He's telling them to see something. It would seem that on day two when he did this, none of his disciples reacted. Even though identifying the Lamb of God, the Messiah, was the very reason for his ministry. John the Baptist has been baptizing people and telling them to prepare to see the Son of God revealed. The Messiah, the Anointed One. And yet the lack of reaction on day two does not cause John the Baptist to throw in the towel. On day three, the way many of us might, impatient people that we are today, we might think, I should not have to repeat myself. We see that despite the lack of reaction on day two, on day three, John the Baptist is repeating himself, behold, the Lamb of God. John the Baptist has both seen something and said something. And this time, two of his disciples follow Jesus. In verse 38, we see Jesus turning to see them following him, and he asks them, what are you seeking? Clearly, the word, God made flesh, isn't asking because he doesn't know. Often it is through meaningful questions being asked of us that we become aware of our motives, aware of what's going on inside of us. I don't think these two men truly know exactly what they are seeking from Jesus. I think our tendency is to seek things from Jesus that are far less than what he's offering. Things that make life better here and now, but what he's offering is life forever with him. They refer to him as rabbi, a term that means teacher. And they ask where he's staying. I think this is where many of us make our biggest mistake concerning Jesus, treating him simply as a good teacher. I'll look to Jesus to learn some nice things about the way to live. I'll look to Jesus to learn some things about the truth. I'll look to Jesus to learn a few things about life. So what about you? What are you seeking from Jesus? A relationship with your loving creator or something less? If it is something less, I'd say look again. Those of us who have read ahead know that in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, Jesus declares something that leaves no room for doubt about who he's claiming to be, and it's not just a good teacher. He tells us that he is the way, that he is the truth, and that he is the life, and that no one comes to God except through him. Despite the less than perfect motives of these disciples, Jesus does not turn them away, but instead, in verse 39, he invites them to come, come and see. And so they do. The text tells us that it was about the 10th hour. And in the system of telling time that John's talking about here, uh, the day begins at sunrise, we'll say 6 a.m. And so this is 10 hours after sunrise, which would be about 4 p.m. The workday is over. Jesus is inviting them to spend the evening with him, which they do. And I'd ask you to not miss what's just happened here. 
God himself in the flesh has invited two men to come and hang out with him. Come and see who I am. In verse 40, we see that one of the men who heard John the Baptist speak and then followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Most commentators are in agreement that the second man in this account is John the Apostle. He normally doesn't name himself when he's talking about himself in his gospel. Also, for some clarity, Andrew's brother was named Simon, but his name is changed by Jesus to Peter. And so in these early references, he's referred to as Simon Peter. Anyway, while the text does not tell us exactly what they learned that evening, it does tell us that the first thing Andrew does when this meeting ends with Jesus in verse 41 is to get his brother, Simon Peter, and tell him, we have found the Messiah. Whatever they had seen while spending time with Jesus so impressed Andrew, he had to say something to his brother. Verse 42 tells us, he brings Simon Peter to Jesus who looks at him and says, you are Simon, son of God. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, or in Greek, Petros, or rock. The significance of this renaming is not totally clear in the text, but would seem to have more to do with what Peter will become rather than what he already is. Reading these verses from the first chapter of John, I'm convinced that evangelism can be as simple as seeing something and saying something. Having spent one evening with Jesus, Andrew seeing Jesus up close and personal says something to his brother and convinces him to come and see. And so on and so on it goes. This has been the process by which people have become followers of Jesus since the beginning of Christianity. This is how we've gone from two men following Jesus then to more than two billion people around the world today that consider themselves Christians. Mind you, this was 2,000 years ago when these men first saw something and said something. How do I know it was 2,000 years ago? Because I have a calendar. My calendar tells me it was 2,000 that it's 2022 now. And what happened 2022 years ago that was so important that we measure time by it? In a word, it was Jesus. Jesus happened. This man who lived only 33 years so influenced humanity that time itself is measured in terms... I'm sorry. Measured in terms of before he became flesh and after he became flesh. This man who claimed to be God still says to us today, come and see, come and see. So what does it mean to be a Christian? It means you are someone that has looked at who Jesus really is and concluded that the best thing you could do with the rest of your life is follow him. Follow him with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, as a disciple, we're being taught how to feel, how to think, and how to live. Mostly how to love the way God loves. And we're being taught by God himself. Through his word, through his people, the church, 
empowered by His Spirit, changing us from the inside. We see Him, not as we imagine Him, but more and more clearly as He really is. And this changes the way we love others. I believe we best love others by saying something. Those of us who have met the Messiah and had our lives changed by Him, we should be eager to tell everyone we care about that we've met Him and that He is who He claims to be, the Word who was with God and who was God, the Word who became flesh and lived among us. So why can't we just love people and not say something? I'd say the most obvious reason is that their conclusion will almost always just be that we're good people. And if that's your only objective, mission accomplished. But if you want them to know about Jesus, you're going to have to say something. Is this the part of the sermon where the pastor makes us feel guilty about not sharing our faith? I would say if you're not sharing your faith, then yes. Yes, it is. I hope you feel guilty until you do share it. Not condemned, not hopelessly evil, but guilty. Guilty is how God's people are supposed to feel when we're not doing what God tells us to do. Let me ask you this. If you knew you had a cure for cancer, and you had discovered it 25 years ago and never told anyone, should you feel guilty about that? Or should you feel good about keeping it to yourself? So what makes it hard for us to do what seems to have come so naturally for Andrew? He saw something and he said something. Seems to me that oftentimes we think we have to know everything about God before we say anything about God. And this isn't true. I testify to the goodness of things all the time that I don't know everything about. I can't explain to you how air conditioning works. I know that if I turn down the thermostat, my house gets cooler. I'm sure to an HVAC specialist, it might seem simple, but to me, it's, it's just Freon and, and there's a compressor and something, something. I can't explain it, but I know it works and I could tell other people confidently air conditioning works. I can't explain everything about how God takes a person and makes them new, but I'm certain he does. I've seen it happen over and over again. And while I've grown over the years in my understanding, I'll never be done growing in my understanding of how awesome God is. I'm quite sure that Andrew and John, after spending an evening with Jesus, did not know everything about Jesus. In fact, I'm sure that after spending 10,000 evenings with Jesus, they would not know everything about him. And yet Andrew shared what he did know, and his brother Peter was persuaded to come and see for himself. This is where discipleship begins. It doesn't end there, but this is where it starts. Someone who has seen something says something. And most often, it is saying something to someone we know. By the way, this is the same Peter that in the second chapter of Acts says something to about 3,000 people 
who become followers of Jesus. I'd say there's another reason we don't say something even though we've seen something. It's fear. The fear that it'll cost us something. Something we don't want to pay. Maybe it's our image. Will people still think I'm cool if they find out I'm a Jesus freak? Or maybe if they know I believe that the supernatural parts of the Bible are true, they'll think I'm crazy or unintelligent because, you know, science. Or maybe because Jesus says some of the things they love are wrong, they'll accuse me of being hateful when I ask them to come and see Jesus. And who wants to be labeled as hateful? But what if you actually have a real relationship with the God who made everything? And he told you to say something. Would you still keep quiet? Because if you know Jesus and you don't say something, this is exactly what you're doing. And it's actually worse than hiding a cure for cancer. Because man's condition apart from Jesus is worse than cancer. The Bible tells us that our rebellion against God has brought about a diagnosis much worse than cancer. This is a disease that doesn't just destroy your body, but one that destroys your soul. And Christian, you have the cure. The cure that saves a man from God's holy wrath. The cure that causes God's enemies to become his friends. So please, when God gives you opportunities, say something. When I look back at the people in my life who have shared their faith in God's goodness with me, they weren't the most intelligent people I knew. They weren't the richest. They weren't the prettiest. They were just people who loved me enough to share with me the best thing that had ever happened to them. They had met Jesus. And they trusted that he had gone to the cross, paid for everything they had ever done wrong to offend the God who made them. He paid with his perfect life. And then he rose from his grave to prove that he is who he said he is. And he's done what he promised he would do way back in the Garden of Eden, which is conquer sin and death. He gives us everything we need to follow him and enjoy him forever. And if this doesn't impress you, I'd say look again. Look harder. Ask yourself, what am I gazing at instead of Jesus that I need to get rid of? Are there people in your life that don't know Jesus? Say something. God will help you. It won't just bless them. It'll bless you. And may it be said of all of us, what John said of Andrew in verse 42, that we brought people to Jesus. I can't think of a higher calling. So before we pray, I'd like to give us just a quick practice of doing what I just talked about. I think you've all heard of, uh, I say God is good and you say all the time. And I say all the time and you say, and I'm going to say another sentence at the end that we're all going to say together. And I am a witness. All right. So let's try that a couple times and let's try it so the people outside hear us. God is good, and all the time, and I am a witness. Let's try it one more time. God is good, and all the time, and I am a witness. Amen. All right, pray with me, please, and I'll wrap up here. Father God, thank you, Lord, that you became flesh. 
you dwelled among us. Lord, thank you that you've gone to the cross, that you've paid for all of our sins, and that you've overcome death for us. Lord, I I pray that your spirit would work in us to focus our attention on you more and more, that we would be filled up by what we see, and that it would pour out of our mouths, Lord, everywhere we go. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.